Good morning and happy Palm Sunday to you. Um, you may or may not have realized it was Palm Sunday uh, before you saw the cover of your bulletin, which said it was Palm Sunday. Um, but today's message is not going to be your usual Palm Sunday message, namely because we're not going to talk about Palm Sunday. We're not going to talk about the triumphal entry at all. We're not going to talk about uh, waving the palm branches. We're not going to talk about Hosanna in the highest. We're not going to talk about any of that stuff. And the reason I'm, I'm kind of skipping over that is because uh, I've covered that the last several years. And if you follow the Christian calendar, uh, this is Palm Sunday. And then next Sunday is Easter. And there's a lot of ground that gets covered between Palm Sunday and Easter. And if that's all the exposure that we have to the, uh, to the Bible at this point, if that's uh, all that we know about the, the, the passion narrative, if you will, it seems like kind of a hard shift, and maybe it's kind of confusing to go from Hosanna in the highest on one Sunday to Jesus being in the tomb uh, the next Sunday. So today we're going to talk about the crucifixion a little bit, but like last week, our focus is not going to be so much on the event itself, but rather we're going to talk about uh, the what behind it. Or, or in other words, what did Christ accomplish in dying on the cross? And last Sunday we looked at the book of Hebrews, and uh, we looked at the New Covenant and, and, and what that means for us today. But today we're going to be in the book of Romans, so if you have your Bible, please turn there. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5, and we'll pick up reading in verse 6. Unfortunately, uh, many times when we read the Bible, just in general, but also when we, uh, when we get to the book of Romans, uh, does anybody remember the Roman road? Uh, I, I remember that growing up. I hear about the Roman road. So you take, you know, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 23, uh, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Then you jump over to chapter 6, verse 23, uh, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and you just work your way through the book of, of Romans. And it, lead, it, it points to salvation. And that's, that's great. It's, uh, there's, some, there's some great stuff in Romans. But the problem is, many times when we read Romans, and many times when we read the Bible as a whole, especially if you have like a devotional book or something like that, you'll read a verse out of Hebrews one week. Then you read a verse out of Romans a different week. Then you might jump to the book of Proverbs a different week. And so you don't get a, an overall picture of what the biblical writers are saying. And so we may not know exactly what Paul's saying in the book of Romans up to this point. And so I'm going to fill you in. Uh, in. In the first three chapters, Paul, like a lawyer in a courtroom, is making the case that every person, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you think you're good, whether you think you're bad, every person is guilty before God. Every person is a sinner when they, when they stand before God. And that's everybody everywhere. So then in chapter 4, what Paul does is he says that people are justified before God on the basis of faith. And then in chapter 5, which we're going to get to today, he, he starts to unpack that a little bit. And so um, it's in this context that Paul tells us some things that Christ accomplished on the cross. And the point of this section is that even though we are unlovable and left to ourselves, we are unsavable, uh, God's love compelled him to send Christ to die for us. And because of his atoning death, Christians are now justified before God, reconciled to God, and exult in God. Now, I know that's a mouthful. I like to try some things up in one sentence. I got it in two on that one. Uh, but hopefully, you'll, you'll see those things as we, uh, as we go through our text today. So if you found Romans chapter 5, please stand with me as uh, we begin reading in verse 6. Paul says, For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were, in, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> now, the gospel literally means good news. So when we talk in church about the gospel, realize that we're talking about good news. But it's hard to appreciate the goodness of the good news unless you know the badness of the bad news. And so Paul starts out by talking in verse 6 and, and following about some bad news. And he talks about our lives before we become Christians. Now, I know probably none of you have ever taken an unflattering picture. But I have taken an unflattering picture or two, and I look at it. Have you ever noticed that the first person you look at in a group shot? It doesn't matter. There could be a thousand people there, and you can find you, can't you? And, and, and very rarely do you look at yourself in those pictures, or maybe you do this, but... Uh, you, you find yourself uh, highly attractive in those pictures. But almost always when I look at those pictures and I see myself, I'm like, ooh, that, that's not so good. I need, to turn my, I need to lift my chin up a little bit so I don't have so many chins in that picture. I need to turn my head a little bit differently. You know, and, and we always, it, it's, it's unflattering when we see pictures of ourselves. And Paul gives us an unflattering picture of our lives before we're Christians. But the thing is, it's an accurate picture of our lives before we we're Christians. Now, if you look at verse 6 again, he says, For a while we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And the first thing he says about, about our condition is that we are helpless. And this is not talking about uh, physical strength, about some uh, uh, brute strength, obviously. He's speaking of morally. And your Bible may say that uh, we are weak or without strength. It's the same idea. In other words, before we have an encounter with Jesus, we don't have the strength to save ourselves. We don't have the strength to please God. We don't have the strength to, uh, to live the life that he calls us to live. We can't live a pure life. We can't live a holy life. Now, that's not to say that before we get saved, we're as bad as we can be. Because let's face it, we can always find somebody that, we're thinks, that we think is doing worse than us. But it means that your best is never going to be good enough. You're totally unable to make yourself right with God on your own. But then that description goes from bad to worse because he says helpless in the middle of verse 6, and at the end he calls us ungodly. And I like the wording that one of the commentators I read uh, used. He said that he, he's building a crescendo. That is just such a great word. A crescendo of badness, I guess you'd say. And uh, a crescendo of bad news. And he describes us as ungodly. And that word ungodly has the idea of being impious, of not having uh, the correct type of uh, or, or amount of reverential awe of God. And then if you'll jump down to verse 8, he says that we are sinners. Not only are we helpless, not only are we ungodly, he says that in verse 8 we're sinners. Now that's an unpopular term today. Many people would say it's outdated to call somebody a sinner. Now sometimes you might... You know, hear somebody and just say, you know, somebody does something bad, they might say, oh, sinner, you know. But very rarely do we hear the word sinner applied to someone 
in a serious way. But even though it's not politically correct, it's correct. And the idea here is that we missed the mark. And so you think about setting up a target and maybe aiming a bow, an arrow at it. And you shoot at that target and you miss wildly. One time I was deer hunting and a, a horse with antlers walked by. I mean, he was a big deer and he was broadside to me, not from here to that back wall. And I had a 30-30 and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some deer in my freezer. But at the same time, I got buck fever. I saw all these antlers and they just grew as I stood there and looked at him. And he was just standing broadside to me. And I pulled up my gun and I shot and I missed. I'm, I don't know how I could have missed. I told Scarlett I must have a bent barrel, and she thought I needed to get a new gun, which I should have taken her up on that. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know how I could have missed. But that's really a picture of us morally, isn't it? I mean, we, we try to, we, we, we aim, and we think, I can't miss, mess this up. I can't miss the target on this one. And we miss. Sometimes our, our best just falls short. We aim, and it just... Sometimes we're aiming this way, and it goes off to the left or off to the right. It, it, it just misses the mark. And that's what Paul, the word that Paul uses here of sinners, that's us. God has set up a standard. He set up a target. And that standard is Himself. He is perfect. He's the one that we should be aiming to be like. And we don't hit the target, ever. Now you say, well, you know what? Yeah, that, that, that fits me. Um, you know, we, we wrong God when we sin. We miss the mark. So he takes it from helpless to ungodly to sinners. And here's the, here's the, the crowning uh, jewel, I guess you will, in this crescendo. If you look at verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we're enemies of God. And that word has the idea of hatred or hostility. And we can think of people who are hostile towards God. They, they're very vocal about it. They're rabid in their hostility towards God. They're, they're the ones that you see on the uh, TV programs. Maybe it's on the news, Discovery Channel, whatever it is. And, uh, and they have a hatred of God. Maybe it's somebody you work with. You talk to them. You go to church. Well, you know, and, and I, I used to go to church. They have some big story. And, and they, they hate God. And you may look at, th- look at that and say, well, that's not me. I grew up in church. I've never been God's enemy. I've, I've never hated God. Well, you may, not have, you may not be a rabbit in your hatred of God, but by nature we're, we're all adversarial towards Him. How many times when you read the Ten Commandments or whatever command it is of God, and God says, do this or don't do that, and it's something, maybe He says, don't do this, and we're already involved in it. Even as Christians, what's our natural reaction? You can tell me. What? We stiffen our neck. Or maybe God says, do this, and we're not doing it. And we say, can't tell. You, you don't have a right to tell me what to do with my money. You don't have a right to tell me what to do. With, you know, we, we stiffen our neck. We resist Him when His Word points to an area in which we need to change. We're hostile towards God. And, and so here's this picture in reverse order. We're going to start at verse 10 and shoot our way backwards. We're God's enemies. We're sinful. We are impious. We're ungodly. 
And the worst part is we're incapable of changing it. We can't make ourselves right with God. Now, that is bad news. That's man's condition without Christ. But then I want you to, to marvel at God's compassion because if, if, if we have... If you go to a doctor and he says you need to take this medicine, that's not really all that big of a deal. But if he says if you don't take this medicine, this is going to happen to you, and it's really bad, then when he says, but I have some good news, there is a cure, an antidote, and if you take this, you'll live, we say, oh, that's great. And when Paul paints this picture, it's setting God's compassion and his grace and his mercy, his love, and it's a bold display, I guess you'd say. Now look at verses 7 and 8 again, because these really highlight... God's compassion. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now follow this argument. They starts in verse uh, 7. He says, Humanly speaking, people wouldn't die for a righteous man. And when he talks about a righteous man, he is not talking in deep theological terms. He's not talking about one being made right with God. He's talking in the general moral sense. And so the righteous man, in in the Jewish way of thinking, there are four classes of people, and and I'm not going to get into all that. But the righteous man, in in what Paul's saying here, is that person who isn't good and they're not bad. They're a person who you can't really blame anything on them, but you can't really commend them for much. They're the person who says... What's yours is yours. You keep your stuff. You do whatever you want with it. What's mine is mine. Just leave me alone. I'm going to go through life. Uh, you, just, yeah, we're all good. You do your thing. I'll do mine. We're fine. That's the righteous man. And he says, if that person is going to die, very few people are going to step up and say, um, I'll take his place. The good person, the good man, he says, is a little bit better because not only... Is does he say what's yours is yours? But he says what's mine is yours, and he says I will help you out. He's the person that goes out and does good. He's tender-hearted. He's kind. He's compassionate. They're friendly. Perhaps somebody like that, Paul says, somebody might say, you know what? They're a good friend of mine. They helped me out one time. I'll take their place. And he says. People won't die for the person who says, yours things are yours, mine's mine. A few might die for somebody that is benevolent, helps people out. But, look at verse 8. We are none of those things. We're not righteous. We're not good. We're sinners. We're ungodly. We are God's enemies. What great compassion God has. Because humanly speaking... People aren't going to lay down their lives for somebody who's not bad. In a few cases, they might lay down their life for somebody who is good. Nobody's going to lay down their life for an enemy. But that's exactly what Christ did. He died for us when we're still God's enemies. While we are sinners, Jesus said in John 3:16, what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So we, we have man's pitiful condition, and in bold contrast to that, we have God's compassion. And so finally, I, want to, I think we should rejoice in the saints' conciliation. And I know that's kind of a big word, but again, the Bible, Bible doesn't tell us everything that Jesus did on the cross in this one little passage. 
but I, I think that he has some good stuff that if we will grab hold of it, it's, it's, it'll make an impact on our lives. The first thing he says, look at verse 9 again. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And, and so the first thing Paul says Jesus accomplished on the cross was our justification. Justification. We are justified. Now that is a big word. It's a Bible word. What does it mean? Justification is a legal uh, idea where God declares the sinner unrighteous. Yeah, unrighteous. He declares the sinner righteous. He declares people righteous. Now how does God call people righteous when Paul's just said that we're sinners? How does that work? Well, follow, follow the thought. The law that God laid out makes certain demands on people. It says you need to behave in this fashion. If you break the law, if you violate God's commands, this will be the punishment for your, for your sin, for violating that law. Now, the Bible says that, that the Christian is in Christ, and when we're joined with him in salvation, his righteousness is credited to us. The old uh, King James word is imputed. It's, it's imputed to us. It's credited to our account. On top of that, on the cross, the Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. And there on the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God that our sin deserved. The Bible has another big word for that. It's called propitiation. Uh, it's taking your whipping for you. Okay? And so he literally died for us in our place, a substitution, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. Therefore, because we have identified with Christ in salvation, the demands of the law towards us have been fulfilled because we have his righteousness credited to our account and the penalty that was due us because we have broken God's law has been fulfilled in the death of Jesus on the cross. Justification. Now, that's a big idea, isn't it? What, what practical application does that have? Look again at what he says. He says that in verse 9, we have been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is speaking of the wrath that awaits the unrepentant sinner on the last day. In other words, he's talking about hell. The Christian is saved from eternity in hell because Jesus paid it all. And I don't know about you, I'm really glad. Aren't you? I mean, and I have bizarre thoughts all the time. You ever been burning brush, cooking over a grill, whatever it is, and sometimes, and that fire is hot. We have a a uh, wood-burning stove, you have to throw a piece of wood in the, in the fire. And I don't know how many times I've, I've experienced that heat. Even for just a second, and I, it's like, man, the, the Bible pictures hell as a, a real place of torment. And it, it always uses a picture of fire, of heat. And you ever thought, man, I'm glad I'm not going there. I, as bad as this is, that's going to be infinitely worse. And Jesus has secured our salvation so we don't have to pay for that because Jesus took it on the cross. He justified us. The next thing that he secured, if you look at, at verses 10 and 11, just scan down through there, 
A good uh, principle of biblical interpretation, if you see something repeated, especially in a fairly short amount of time, it's probably significant. Three times in two verses, Paul uses the same word, reconciliation, or some version of that. Jesus brought about reconciliation. He reconciled us to God. Now, what does it mean to be reconciled? It means, again, I know these are great big words, but they really have, uh, they're really easy to understand when you think about them. Reconciliation is when there are two parties that are at odds with one another are brought together. Okay, and, and Paul says up in verse 1, if you look at it, that because of this reconciliation, we now have peace with God. Now, this is very significant. It's, it's one of those little details that we kind of overlook sometimes. But notice that we are reconciled to God, and he's not reconciled to us. And it's not, it's, whenever you see that word reconciled in the Bible, it's talking about our salvation, it's always us being reconciled to him. Why? Because he's the one that's in the right. He's not the one that went astray. We are. He, he's, he didn't need to come to us. We need to go to him. And so God made a way for us to come to him, to have peace with him when we were once his enemies. And as we go along with that, if you look in verse 10, it says that we, will be, uh, that we are reconciled through his blood and that, he, uh, and that we will be saved, much more we will be saved by his life. What does that mean? It means that we're going to be eternally saved. Why? Well, again, follow the, follow the argument that he makes. When you think of life and death, life is always the stronger thing, right? Death is more of the feebler. Uh, how many times have you gone to the, the hospital room and that person that's on their, on their last leg, you don't see them laying there in strength, do you? They're feeble. They're weak. And what, Christ, and what Paul is saying is that Christ did something so great as to take an enemy of God and make him a friend of God made him right with God, and he did that through the weaker thing, how much more so will he keep us and preserve us who put our faith in him by the stronger, which is his everlasting life? Said another way, it's a lot further to go from being an enemy to a friend than to go from grace to glory. It's further to go from being an enemy to a friend than to go from grace to glory. And if he did something so great... That's to make an enemy of God a friend of God in his death, the weaker thing. How much more will he keep us with his life that he now lives? So he brought justification, reconciliation. The last thing is in verse 11, very quickly. He has caused us to exulting God through Christ. And again, just think of the change that has to be made in our hearts. When the person who is hostile towards God, doesn't want anything to do with God, all of a sudden... We're, we're weak, feeble, ungodly sinners. And he's caused us to not only be neutral towards God, but actually to exalt and glory in him. A complete change of, of heart. Salvation is of the Lord. It's his idea. It's not our idea. He's the one who initiated it. It's his plan. He sent Christ. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. It's his offer. It's all him. It's not us. You can't do it. I can't do it. We can't add to it. It's not Jesus plus anything. We can't take away from it. It's not Jesus minus anything. It's Jesus. It's Christ alone. And we can only accept or reject his offer. Those are his terms. On one hand, he offers you forgiveness of sin. 
to be made right with Him, reconciliation, justification, exaltation, all those things. And on the other hand, He says, you can stay in your sin, live apart from Me, die apart from Me, and one day suffer eternity in hell forever separated from Me. Those are the choices. There's no in-between. That's not a very hard choice to make. It shouldn't be a very hard choice to make. And if God is convicting you today, I, I, I beg you to come to Him. Repent of your sin. Be reconciled to God in Christ. It's not reconciled to God in anybody else or anything else. It's in Jesus alone. Be saved today. Don't think, well, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll just come to God. I'll just wait till some other day. I'll just wait till some other time. Maybe when there's not people around. Maybe on my deathbed after I've gone some of my wild oats. Don't think you'll do it just any old time, any old way, because Jesus said, not Jeff said, Jesus said in John 6:44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. He didn't say, no one except you. He said, no one. Will you be made right with God today in Christ? And if you have experienced those things that Paul talks about, and we have reason to be thankful. I mean, a lot of times we, you say, well, what's there to be thankful about Thanksgiving time? We'll have to go around the table, right? And we say, oh, man, car's broke down. My boss is driving my back at work. You know, whatever it is, I'm not feeling good. And we think we don't have anything to be thankful for. But we've got a lot to be thankful for. And if you don't, come November... If you get stuck, go back to Romans 5. He tells us all kinds of stuff. You don't deserve it. He, it wasn't that he looked down and said, You know, Braddock's a pretty good old boy. He, he kind of deserves this. No. We don't deserve it. Remember your former life when you were separated from God. Marvel at his compassion. Give thanks. Tell somebody else about it. Want to stand with me as musicians come? And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And nobody looking around, I honestly don't think I know how to present the gospel any more simply than that. Everybody's a sinner. We all deserve eternity in hell, separated from God. But in His great love, Jesus came and died on the cross in our place. And if we will repent of our sins, if we'll turn our back on it and turn towards God in faith, trusting in Him and Him alone, we'll be saved. Paul said even more simply, he said, if you'll confess Jesus is Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you need to do that today, maybe you're a Christian and man, you've been thankful and you are thankful, maybe you should pray for uh, somebody who's hearing this that doesn't know the Lord.
Will you be saved today? Christian, will you be thankful today?